This is Kai Stewart, reading bedtime stories for nobody. On the train, the cars are ordered arbitrarily, and if you turn around, you won't see the car you just left. The dining car is white and brass, and alive with the conversation of silver and crystal. You can always smell coffee with cream, and the light splashes against the walls as the chandeliers sway. In the back, it opens up into a ballroom. Pairs of dancers in ivory and soot pivot and dip to a sixteen-piece band. Everyone is in ivory and soot, and the dancers all wear half-masks that contrast with their outfits. Some pairs wear the same color as each other, some complementary colors. Some wear masks that match their partners, some that contrast. The diners nearest the floor half-turn in their chairs to watch and sip flutes of champagne. Those further from the floor seem to all be businessmen, loud-voiced and wide-gesturing in pencil skirts and shoulder pads, power ties and pantsuits, and they are buy, buying, and sell, selling, and putting ones over on each other, and one of them says, into a moment of silence that wanders sometimes, by mistake, into the middle of conversations, I'm getting large into love, and all the businessmen pause, uncertain, and then one of them clears a throat and says, Love, huh? Good futures in that, risky but big payoff, and then they're all talking love, accruing and investing, and developing their portfolios. On the dance floor, the colors of mask and dress begin to change. Even the doors to the service tunnels are magnificent inlaid with an array of glowing woods. The inlay slithers away from your hand and reconfigures, slithers away and reconfigures as you reach for the doorknob. Travel up through the galleries of bones, over the shining zygomatic buttresses and past the two great orreries with their twin rose windows, up to the very top. Climb out onto the sloping roof, Step over the wriggling gutters and the summer rains constantly overflowing them. See the puddles reflect the sky and see the giant book that hangs from the rafters of a plate glass greenhouse built over the dome of the bone rooms. It contains everything that has ever happened to the dome or the greenhouse, including this. Many of the pages are missing, though. Someone has torn them out. Only jagged edges and scattered words remain. Of. Traverse. Gutters. Held. You could, if you were tired of climbing stairs, tear out a page yourself and fold it into a glider. They harvested the glass for the greenhouse from the forests up north. The deep, old-growth forests, where you can cut a whole picture window from a single tree. No birds sing in that forest, but all of places you might think to see birds are filled with geckos. Geckos climb the great glassy bowls and parachute down onto the twinkling forest floor. Geckos pat loose nests into place and raise families hidden from hungry predators by sudden flashes of rainbow. Geckos lap nectar from the cups of flowers and leave pollen footprints on the petals. 
behind a stand of monstrous glass oaks. The geckos have cleared a bare spot. All the shards of fallen leaves, the dust from worn-down cracks, all the complicated underbrush, moved outside the circle of trees. Scientists come and drop marbles, coins, candy wrappers in the clear spots, and measure how long it takes a gecko to wander by and clear it again. The longest measured time is seven hours, in a year when drought had diminished the gecko population, and the shortest is six seconds, when a gecko parachuted down from the branches above the clearing. Once a scientist set a heavy book in a clearing to see what the geckos would do when they can't keep the clearing clear. After three days of more and more geckos wandering into the clearing, trying and failing to move the book, the first gecko, the gecko that first found the book, panting with thirst and exhaustion, stopped. It walked away from the book. It walked away from the clearing. And inside of three minutes, all the other geckos had also. Even after the scientist removed the book, the geckos didn't come back. And eventually the clearing filled up again with forest. If you were to visit that spot now, if you go there and clear away the debris and new growth, sweep up the glass powder and leaf litter, you'll find a small trap door with a brass pull ring. It opens upward. If you pull open the trap door, you'll see a long, cool stairway leading downward, letting out a breath of cedar needles, and mushrooms, and clear water. There are 100 stairs in that stairway. There are five flights of 20 stairs each. And after the 20th stair, it stretches out into a little landing. On each landing, there's a door set into the cool clay walls. You never open any of these doors, though I don't know why not. You do wonder what's behind them, dimly in passing, as one wonders where the mailman goes on her day off, or when cantaloupe are in season. But you walk down all the steps, not fast, but steadily and without pause. And when you get to the bottom, you get on the first train that comes, and you take it wherever it goes. Me, I open all the doors. I walk down all the hallways, I talk to the station agent, I push all the buttons, and I dig through all the flower beds. I don't get on a train at all, but with two exaggerated steps, I climb over the guardrail and take the catwalk up to the door with inlay of brass and horn that wiggle away from my hands as I reach for the doorknob, and I open the door, and I walk into the service tunnel. I don't see the orchestra or the dancers, only the rippling worm lights reaching up to snatch their progenitors out of the air, only the spark of my steel toes on the flat tiles, only the thunder of the swift approaching dawn. 